0: Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Sovereign. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode. Hope you are enjoying our brand new exciting jingle. And to go with that exciting jingle, we've got a very exciting guest with us this week. So I am joined by Natalie Douglas, who is a serial health tech entrepreneur. She's had an amazing career, started in sales and marketing, learned her trade at pharma companies, including J&J, worked her way up to be a CEO, turning one company around from half a million turnover to 150 million turnover. She then turned around a massive health tech business called Healthcare at Home, which you've probably heard of, which got acquired by a private equity group. And she's gone on to found her own company as you can imagine she advises quite a lot of health tech companies and invests now in a lot of health tech startups too so if you are wondering what it takes to be the ceo of a massive health tech company if you're wondering what it takes to transition from a founder ceo to a ceo of a massive health tech company and you're looking to figure out whether you've got the qualities required to found your own health tech company and run your own health tech company then stay tuned for all of those questions to be answered on this week's episode as always if you want to get in touch with us then head over to the description of this podcast in apple Podcasts, spotify whichever you are using in there you'll find all the links to our socials websites and emails So Natalie, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thank
1: you very much. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much. Excellent. Whereabouts
0: whereabouts are you uh, speaking to us from today? I'm
1: speaking to you from uh, my house actually in Princeton, New Jersey. I just moved uh, back to the US uh, after spending six years living in Switzerland. So um, I've just undertaken quite a big move, albeit back to a part of the world uh, I know pretty well. So yeah, all good. Excellent.
0: I was going to say, you don't have an american accent but i'm sure Do we'll not. hear all about <laughs> where you're from and all your different moves so um, yeah and that's i know we've spoken before and uh i've obviously yeah. heard about your background and stuff but for the benefit of our listeners why don't you tell us your story
1: i will and I, i've been thinking about where to start with all of this um you know i i grew up in pool in dorset just outside Paul in dorset so um uh, on the coast on the beach you know in the country um I am one of three kids. I am uh, a product of, um, I guess, a, an extended family, all of whom ran their own businesses, albeit they were all very small businesses. So I guess I come from, um, you know, a background of people doing their own thing. Um, it's in the family then. It is in the family <laughs> um, in many respects, although, you know, I did end up going into a corporate career at the beginning. Um you know, when I uh, left college, I ended up going into big pharma. I, I, my very first role in healthcare, actually, was at Johnson and Johnson, the pharmaceutical arm. And you know, when I look back on that move, it was quite a big deal because I wasn't necessarily scientifically uh, minded. You know, I had a, I'd studied marketing and business um, at degree level, but I wasn't um, particularly scientifically motivated let 's say I you know I managed to squeeze into the training program because I did have one of the pre qualifiers which was an o level as it was at the time in biology so <laughs> I, I you know I, I managed to squeeze myself into the training program at j and j and and i don 't know how that happened in many respects <laughs> I was the only one on the training course without a biochemistry degree um, and I, I suppose that is a, in a way that was that 's kind of been a little bit of the Um, you know it's a concept around my life which is I haven't always you know I've ended up in a situation that maybe I wouldn't have expected to be in in some respects my what was I good at Um, English languages music all of those things and yet I've ended up in a um, you know, building a career in the healthcare industry. And, and actually, particularly in, in my role at J&J, I was working in very intense fields of medicine and very innovative areas of medicine back in the 90s, um, you know, working alongside some of the most eminent clinicians who were treating patients with HIV and AIDS. And in those days, this is before triple therapy. And, wow. you know, I was right in there at the clinic, you know, talking to the doctors who were right at the cutting edge of new and innovative ways to treat people figuring out what was going on scientifically medically clinically and also talking to patients it was an amazing time in many respects but also kind of pinch yourself moments where I didn't really think about it at the time but when I look back I'm like wow how did I how did that happen um, I don't know is the answer. I don't know how that happened. It just did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I wish I could give you some sort of really intelligent answer to that, but you know, I just can't. And so I, you know, I have spent most of my life um, building businesses, selling drugs to doctors, but building healthcare businesses. And now, you know, I'm an investor in healthcare business, predominantly healthcare businesses. So, you know, I've spent years in healthcare and, have um occupied a number of seats along the way you know i started right at the bottom carrying the bag as we called it you know selling drugs to doctors calling on gp surgeries at seven o'clock in the morning which was not an easy job you yeah, know like 20, a proper sales yeah. job i was total you know mm. yeah and um you know getting trying to get there before 20 other reps from 20 other drug companies you know i mean it was Um, Some of it was really intimidating and um, some of it was really enjoyable. You know, you could you could get to meet some really great people, but it wasn't an easy job um, getting certainly getting past the receptionists That was a bit tough. Um, it was a bit easy work, working for Johnson and Johnson though was quite helpful because I had little I had little um bottles of Johnson's baby lotion and for some reason that used to do the trick. <laughs> I, I just you know whipped the stuff out of my bag and I could get an appointment a bit easier. I wouldn't say it was quite as easy as that, but yeah, so I don't know, I was this Dorset, in a way, country girl, quite naive, and um when I look back at my career aspirations and what drove the route that I took, it was probably based on um, looking at some of the natural abilities I had, but also combined with this vision of what my life could look like. I didn't really have a career ambition per se I didn't have a sector you know one of my best friends is very senior at J&J today and she said to me she always wanted to be a pharmacist um you know from the age of like eight years old well you know down in Dorset I don't think I really knew what a pharmacist was <laughs> yeah. uh, at eight years old um you know I was surrounded with um a, a loving family lots of outdoor activity but very um you know in in honesty very parochial when I look at it and I guess I used to I was an avid reader I used to read a lot of books and and that sort of fueled my fascination and my interest in more broadly moving to London so that was in in a way that was my goal it was not necessarily I want to do this with my life I I was definitely influenced by the fact that most of the people around me and my immediate family seemed to work for themselves um apart from my uncle who was actually a professional football player but that's a a, a whole other you're just dropping nuggets now i've just got these random there's a lot of random (laughs) elements in my background (laughs) there's some some real quirkiness and i and i definitely think that you know i would describe myself as a bit of an outlier in a in a number of ways so in um, a
0: group of outliers it seems
1: totally totally and so i play for your uncle um oh West, West Bromwich Albion Crystal Oh, I'm a Wolves
0: fan. That is terrible. News. Yeah,
1: and well, <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that. Yeah, he was and actually in his day as well, they didn't get paid the kind of money that get they get paid today. But Indeed. um yeah, he was a professional footballer and um you know my grandfather ran the local football team and my dad was the referee, you know. So I grew up in quite a sports <laughs> family as well. And of course I, you know, whilst I look after myself, I was never um you know, inspired to go into, you know, sporting industry or yeah. a sporting business or even become any kind of sports person. You know, I was, um, you know, so I, I guess I'm I'm a bit quirky and definitely... Success um,
0: surrounds you though, definitely, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think our culture as a family was... Um, and I did sort of stubbornly rebuff some of this, you know, my family are not a pushy bunch, you know, they are, I think that, you know, when I look at my father and his business, I see someone who's very kind, he's a very kind man, probably wasn't that business savvy. My uncle was definitely, you know, like the one that got away, but the one that everyone was very proud of. There was never any sort of competitiveness in my family. Mm. Um, And so there was success, but I think that success elsewhere, apart from, um, that uncle was, was sort of very much more localized. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do recall feeling like, um, I needed to sort of break up the status quo or I needed to push against it. I did, I didn't, I, I mean, in all, without being a critical about my background, um, I, I felt quite, um, uh, sort of frustrated sometimes that I needed to sort of push through and it, I needed to do it on my own which is exactly what it what it's been like probably throughout my life which is why I am at heart an entrepreneur and why I did end up building um you know a very successful healthcare business and creating a new market so um but it's um You know, the the definite had I definitely had a vision for what I wanted my life to be like. And what was within that vision is that I needed to move away from Dorset. I had a fascination with London. And beyond that, I had a fascination actually with um, and I was good at languages. So, you know, I, I spoke French and Spanish where I studied French and Spanish through school and don't get me wrong. I am no expert of either of those these days. <laughs> my, French, my French is a bit better from having lived uh, just outside Geneva for a few years, but you know, so I, what, what sort of formed my, um, my behaviors and my actions at that time were really that, you know, if I wanted to get on in my career, I needed to move from Dorset. Um, and I was keen to do that. I did study um, and I read a lot and I was interested in languages. So, you know, I was interested in Europe and I was thinking a lot about America. So what I knew was there was a whole world outside of Dorset and I needed to see how far I could go. Um, so that-
0: why help? Why health?
1: Do you know, I've been thinking about this. I've thought about it for quite a long time, knowing I was going to be talking to you. (laughs) The the only thing I can remember is when I was doing my options. Do you remember options? I mean, you're a bit younger than me. So maybe um, the system was slightly different, but I remember uh, when we were thinking about what um, O levels we were going to take at school. I remember the school wanting to encourage us to think ahead and think about what kind of career um, we would want. And Uh, I remember there was a bus trip one day to the local hospital. Um, It was pool general hospital to be specific. And I remember getting on that bus and I don't know what I can't remember at all is what inspired me to get on that bus to pool general hospital. There must've been a reason for that. Um, I knew, though, at that time, I was definitely not ever interested in nursing or becoming a doctor. I mean, you know, even thinking about becoming a doctor was definitely not on my radar. No, it just wasn't on my radar. So I think nursing would have been more, um, I wasn't interested in it. I'm just saying that that probably would have been the level of aspiration at that point. Sure. and you know, probably because I wasn't particularly good at science, right? Or I wasn't really inspired by science at that point in time. It's not that I wasn't good at it. I wasn't yeah. inspired by it. It's a different thing. But I do remember getting on that bus to Paul General Hospital and having a, a good wander around a hospital. And that's, the, that's all I can tell you. I don't know why I did it. <laughs> uh, and... Um, uh, anyway, but but a few years down the line, um, you know, I'd studied marketing. I was working in a tourism, in, in the tourism industry at that time. Um, and again, largely centered around my, um, I guess, my credibility with languages and my interest in languages. You know, when I was at school, there wasn't a great deal of enthusiasm or there wasn't a great deal of um, inspirational um, career opportunities you know coming through and so you kind of ended up in tourism because of your language ability right so I ended up working um, at the uh, Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead oh my god this is so funny having talking to you about this stuff it's actually hilarious because I'm thinking crikey that's like a hundred years ago <laughs> um, but yeah so I ended up at working at the Windsor and Maidenhead Tourist Board and it is their marketing manager and um, my, one of my flatmates at the time, Yvette, was working for Office Angels um, in Slough. And she called me up one day and she said to me, I, she was new, <laughs> so she said, Natalie, I've got this role at this occupational health company, she said, and I need a candidate. She said, will you just go along? Because I, need to, I haven't got any candidates and I need a candidate. And you've got marketing, you know, you're a marketeer can you just go along because I've got to show that I um, have a, a, a candidate for this role. So, and I was like, Oh, well, of course I'll do that for you. She was my, she was my drinking buddy. So off I go to um, this company in Slough called, uh, it was called, I think it was called Occupational Health, but um, it's not a very inspiring name when you think about it, but anyway, it, it was an <laughs> occupational health company and it delivered services for a lot of the large employers on the slough industrial estate i don't know if you've ever been slough but there i don't know what it's like today but in those days it was a huge industrial estate you know we were parked directly opposite mars the mars factory Um, and i remember going for that interview just to do a favor and i came out with a job offer wow and i took the job I didn't know anything about occupational health, but I think it again. It was probably just a, a step up, or it was just something different. Um, so, I, and that that was how I that was my first job in a sort of uh, healthcare environment. And from there, I wasn't there very long in a marketing manager capacity. But from that particular job, that's when I um, got into Johnson and Johnson because the next step was that my one of my other friends, Jackie, she was dating a guy called Graham, who was a drug rep for Glaxo Welcome. And mm. he was living down in uh, Cornwall. And he, I used to talk to him about his job all the time. I'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And I was fascinated with his job. And it was basically through him. And through Jackie, that um, my connection to them inspired me to respond to an ad in The Daily Telegraph on a Thursday. All the ads used to come out on a Thursday for drug reps, and, they, and I just applied for the job, and I got it and I ended up on the training program at Johnson and Johnson, which was really my big break into. Uh, what I would call mainstream healthcare Mm. and, you know, working in a big corporate environment as well. So I was, you know, rookie rep, no um, biochemistry degree, but somehow on, and that training program was really intense. Um, I had to work really hard. Um, we had tests every week and I remember some weeks I was the bottom of the class right I mean if if you're the one with a marketing degree versus the biochemist and uh, you're learning the mode of action for this particular you know therapy you know you can imagine that stuff was really hard for me and there were there were times when I was like what the hell am I doing on this training course I'm not good enough to not good enough to do this job
0: but then put um, you in a sales meeting i imagine you uh outperformed them and rose was, the ranks pretty quickly that, after that but
1: that was the thing right so i was really good at it and yeah. i remember um actually i remember part of our training program we had been training for weeks it was a lot of fun by the way i mean I to about, <laughs> but the stuff i was really good at was simplifying the complexity um and and being able to stand up and present and talk about why a doctor yeah. should this medication right that was something i was really good at the science was hard but i somehow that was my natural ability And, and so i suppose realizing through that training program that i couldn't be good at everything but there were certain things i was really naturally good at that got me through and then i remember going to uh we had to do this part of our um training program was going to a local surgery and um um detail it's called detailing you know pitching to these doctors and i have to tell you james i felt physically sick on that day i was so nervous because i'm like who am i
0: oh uh, imposter syndrome
1: a total total, total imposter syndrome um and 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 um i i would say that as a woman in business that is probably been you know the little monkey on my back over many years but Mm. I remember going and detailing these doctors I honestly I thought I was going to be sick even my trainer thought I was going to be sick and then um but I got through it and um I came out with pretty much top marks and one of the doctors had written this girl is really fun and she was great to talk to and no one else in the team nobody else on the um on the course had that co- had those comments and um i have to say that has stayed with me all this time to, to get me over that hurdle of thinking that i don't belong and that i shouldn't be here um and and also i learned as i as i you know continued in my career at johnson johnson and i became you know a top performing rep some of those early day um, experiences really helped me because what I realized is I just had to be myself. I had to be authentic. And I, there was no point in trying to pretend that I could have a conversation with a doctor about, um, the details of how a drug works, right? I can't do that because I'm not qualified to do that. But I think that that was something that really helped me because I never pretended I could, uh, have that level of conversation. So the conversation I had and the way I went about selling was very different to perhaps what they were used to. Mm. Um, And I did get that feedback over the years from doctors that I became quite friendly with who said to me that you're different to what we normally see in this
0: surgery there's definitely an honesty about even the way that you've spoken on this podcast so far there's there's a sort of a realness to the way you speak and the way that you you know despite all of these accolades that that you've had in your career you know you're able to just say that you know I'm from a small town you know small town girl from um from Dorset you know just wanting to break away and you know you're talking about the you know the monkey on your shoulder there and you know that imposter syndrome that might you know still creep up every now and again there is that kind of honesty to you and I think you know for 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 people listening that you know have got aspirations to be leaders in in whether that's in a corporate, whether that's of your own startup, you know, that ability to to converse honestly and communicate honestly is such a powerful tool in leadership. And the ability to speak very well, the ability to to sell like you did, you know, in your sale, you know, you've done sales and marketing, you're then selling drugs as a drug rep, you know, you're, you're going up speaking to people that you have never met before having to build rapport very quickly. You know, it's a similar thing. If you're raising money for your startup, you know, you've got to go meet these investors, have this one-to-one interaction with someone that you might have imposter syndrome meeting that you've never met before. You're going to have to talk about difficult concepts. You know, there's, there's certain things that mirror, aren't there?
1: Absolutely. And actually, I remember when I went out raising funds for my business, I went into a very small business called Idis. I then went out to, I mean, I'm considered the founder of that business because of what I created. But actually, I went into a small business um, that I then that, that took off because I developed a new strategy for it. And then the founders wanted to sell. And at that point, I just said, let me try. I was, you know, I was like, I'm building this business. Let me try and do it. And they were amazing to allow me to do that. Um, And so I had to go out and pitch my business model to a whole bunch of private equity guys. And this wasn't a startup, you know, I was generating at this point, by the time that we actually got private equity in, the, the business was in excess of a 2 million EBITDA turnover business. But I had, st- I had started in that business when it was generating less than, you know, half a million in EBITDA. So, um, but I had to go out and pitch. And this is where I, I some, sometimes when you're going, you know, the imposter syndrome, it, di- it didn't hit me until afterwards. I, because I had to stop myself from thinking I've never done this before. Yeah. So, um, when I'd gone into that particular business, um, some of what I'd done before you know training at J&J is just the most incredible training you would ever get you know how corporates work how you need to support people to do their job how leadership works what management is it was amazing amazing training had a resource it doesn't necessarily teach you some of the other commercial elements which I learned elsewhere but you know going into IDIS at that time it was a very sort of you know like a family business and i had to bring structure to it i had to bring strategy to it i had to bring commercial thinking to it but going out and talking to potential investors you know banks i didn't know anything about you know corporate level banking i didn't know anything about private equity and how that worked all i knew how to do was talk about my business I backed it up with the numbers too. So they, you know, I could talk about it eloquently. I could explain where I was taking the business. Um, And I was talking to people who didn't know anything about this particular sector of healthcare, which was quite unique and quite specialist. So I was creating an industry, creating a market. And I only knew this from my work um, at J&J, working in the sort of investigational medicine space. But I was able to clearly articulate the business model I answered every question they had and I could back it up because I had a track record, you know, tick, tick in the box that you were J and J tick in the box that I had some good, solid, credible, um, you know, solid business. Yeah, experience It's things you better. can point
0: to, isn't it? And on your All CV, that stuff. And it makes people feel comfortable. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, but I, I still, um, and I, and I had people eating out of my hand, every bank wanted in probably minus one, um, and, you know, I, w- I was talking to sort of four or five private equity firms, all of whom wanted to invest. So, you know, I didn't, I, and I actually didn't waste too much time worrying about that, because what I was worrying about was, I need to secure this deal so that i can take the business forward so you know you can uh, you have to bet in my experience what i do is it's that kind of feel the fear but do it anyway mantra that that works for me because it's like okay i'm a bit scared but this is most important so i'm going to focus on that objective right and that's how that's how i roll really (laughs)
0: <laughs> and that's an, and that's another thing that you've just mentioned there is focus, you know, mm-hmm. that feel the fear and do it anyway. It's, it's like, okay, I'll allow myself to appreciate that this situation is what it is. And I'll let that emotion, you know, wave over me. Yeah. But actually, there's a job to be done here. And I'm just going to get down and focus and do it. So, you yeah. know, you've highlighted another very important quality that you've got to be a good CEO there. With IDIS, Mm. What, what what is idis is that is that a pharma company that you moved to from um, James? a small pharma company what was it so
1: um oh my god so it, this business so i had come back from working overseas in canada and i was doing a an interim role back in pharma for uh, gsk and a, a a friend it was again one of those serendipitous moments a friend of mine was working as a pharmacist at this <laughs> company called idis it was actually called idis world medicines at the time and she calls me up and she says right, this company needs a marketing manager. And she said, are, are you interested? Um, she said, the, the, there's, they just need somebody who knows, knows what they're doing. So I go along and what this business was doing, it was called Idis World Medicines. And what this business did is it found medicines that were, not licensed in the UK. They had to find medicines that were licensed outside the UK Mm. to bring in under special importation for individual patients with unmet need. And so to give you an example, this could be a preservative free formulation of a medicine that, you know, is needed for a particular baby at Great Ormond street hospital. Right. So it's, it's it was an, in a way it was like an unlicensed medicines procurement a business, And it was Ooh, doing wow. this for the NHS. Um, and of course, I understood this concept because of my time at J&J, because what happened at J&J, particularly with these patients with HIV and AIDS, they would have very serious, when they actually had AIDS and it was sort of protracted and it was sort of fairly late stage, they get horrific um, opportunistic fungal infection. They would get candid- severe candida in their yeah. mouths, which would mean that, that, you know, they can't swallow So one of the drugs I was promoting at the time, which had a label was called itraconazole, Um, but there was a solution, a liquid formulation of itraconazole that was in um, development. It wasn't yet available, Um, but we were supplying it on a sort of compassionate use basis Um, under prescription. This is all, you know, um, official, it's the doctor that's making that decision. So I understood this concept. Um, And and maybe not many people did understand that concept, which is why the whole IDIS proposition got me. I was like, I understand what this is. Um, And so it was importing medicines into the UK for individual patients. And it was doing a pretty good job. What it was also doing is it was importing comparator drugs, just to a small extent, comparator drugs for clinical trials. So it had some pharmaceutical clients as well and it would sometimes do this to other territories so we had a few clients in france um so we would export a british licensed medication for use in a french patient um but that particular medication wasn't actually available in the french market so that's what the business did but when i came in i was like i I remember going for my interview and uh, it my head just exploded into this mind map Um, that's the only way I can explain it a (laughs) big mushroom cloud poofing out of my head and I could I just I just mapped out this model because I was like I get this I get the comparator drug but also what I could see is pharmaceutical companies need to be working with this company to enable more patients to get access to these drugs it's all regulated this was a, a model that no one had created so poof there it was there was the idea Um, so I took the job and I became the marketing manager. Um, and then they said to me, um, can you take on sales? And I was like, yeah. So I became sales and marketing <laughs> manager and I don't think they'd ever seen anything like it. And this was like a really pedestrian, like everybody used to go to lunch at the same time. And I would be yeah. the one in the office going, where is everybody? The phone's ringing. <laughs> and, um, so I think I was a real irritant to start with, especially for the staff, but for the founders, they were like, my God, you know, she's getting stuff done. And yeah. um, the EBITDA started to go and I started to build this model. And then I took it out to industry. I, I remember, but setting up this focus group, um, it was about fifteen managing directors of British pharma companies, and I said to them, "Right, this is my model. This is what we do, and um, this is why you should work with us." Doing my little sales pitch, and I have to tell you, I was very nervous. That was one of my most nervous presentations because these guys were really important people. These were running all the big pharma companies in the UK. And there was, this was me in massive imposter syndrome that evening. I'm like, Oh my God, who am I telling all these guys what they should be doing? And one of them very,
0: very male dominated as well.
1: Oh, I was the only woman in the room. I think they honestly thought I was going to be making the coffee after I finished (laughs) my presentation. Right. And I've had loads of those meetings. Um, And uh, so I was a bit nervous and there was one guy in there. I knew really well. um, And he was really helpful because I think he, he could see that I was just not um, he could see that I was really feeling nervous. Right. So he sort of helped me out because he happened to be working with us already. So he was, uh, his name was um, Tim and he was just a massive support to me that evening. Anyway, one of the great thing about that meeting is that, and what spurred me on, which goes back to my point of focus and a stubbornness to to just get stuff done and proven one of those managing directors in the room I won't tell you who it is but um I, I his face remains in my at uh, the back of my head he just said um well, because it's been a massive it was a massive massive motivator for me he yeah. said his his voice in front of 14 other people Um, he just said oh my god if anyone in my company was working with you I'd bloody fire them those were his precise words to me and it was my light bulb moment because actually what it told me is he does he doesn't understand what this business can do for his company and I need to prove to him and everybody else what needs to be done. And I built an international healthcare services business that was working with top 20 pharma companies all over the world. Um, wow. So that, that's what I did. And those, so those simple conversations, but powerful elements of feedback have been vital along the way. And it wasn't that I was belligerent about proving him wrong. It was powerful because it was like right I've got work to do but because I'd come from the pharma industry and because I carried the bag and because I bloody well knew myself that there were patients who needed to live out there I had to prove to these guys that and they were scared right they were scared about this. most pharma companies only focus on bringing drugs to market with a marketing authorization right they don't under, they're terrified of providing drug outside of a clinical trial setting or outside of a marketing authorization and I understood that, so I had to Get out there using language, giving examples, providing case studies, supporting them along the way to explain to them that this was okay and that it was regulated. And actually, IDIS was going to help manage that process, which is what I did. So I built this entire uh, framework it was called managed access and so i built the business we still did comparative drug um cool. supply and we did that on a grand scale and we were still helping hospitals get access to um individual medicines for individual patients but i built this managed access proposition amazing um, and you and took it to over hundred million,
0: million i read uh, that... over
1: a hundred in turnover terms i took it to over 150 million wow um, an underlying profitability of around 20 million eBITDA and bought in private equity, paid off private equity, paid off bank debt, and continued to grow, took it into America, where it was a nascent market, and, and so was able to do all of that. Um, So the underlying profitability was even better. It's because we were investing along the way in America. We set up in France, we set up in India as well. So it was a very successful business and and an absolute passion of mine. And I built that model. I was so proud of it, but I was so passionate as well Mm. about doing the right thing you know, this was about doing the right thing for pharma, doing the right thing for physicians, doing the right thing for patients. It was a very powerful combination. I'm you know, proving I people
0: wrong as well. I was going to pull out the you know, yeah. motivations. Another one that I'm going to pull out here is another thing that made you a good CEO in this case. You know, you're know, you motivated by all those things you just mentioned as well as the fact you've got the image of this guy's face burnt into the back of your mind just <laughs> yeah, telling yeah. you that you're rubbish and it's never going to work. Um, yeah, Motivation is such a powerful, powerful thing. We look for it all the time actually in founders and I'm sure you do as an investor and I'll probably come on to that a bit later on. Yeah, but. Yeah. You know, you look for that in founders, don't you, for for that kind of, you know, are they going to get out of bed and run through a brick wall to solve this problem? What is it about this problem that they really want to solve?
1: I think the thing about going, coming back to the point about being CEO, I mean, I was managing director first when I did the, when I completed the buyout, I did that on my own. It was quite evident. I mean, I'd been running the business to all intents and purposes anyway, but I had never been given the managing the title, director yeah. title. And that, that came along with completing the MBO. Um, and the, the, the said to me, this, you've been doing this job for ages. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it's obvious to us. You have know, I proven myself to them and, everybody else and they said you you know this is your title and then you know i had to work i had to work my way into becoming this um ceo which was you know it was a natural progression um and again you know i've, I've done it several times now so it's not as if it's um you know i i think i know what it takes but some of those qualities are really vital you know good leadership um it's, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of skills. Um, but in my experience, I had to show people the way, right? So um, you've pointed it out already, you know, I'm extremely motivated. People will say about me, I'm extraordinarily focused and I am, if I'm super in, I mean, you know, it's very black and white for me. Is it, is it something that interests me or not? And if it doesn't, you know, it needs to be part. but I am extraordinarily focused. I can be, it's like a bullseye to me. What I, if I, if it's something I am motivated for something, I'm passionate, yeah. something I get, it's like a bullseye. That's what I, or like a, you know, I'd explain yeah. like a runway. I'm massively um, focused, very motivated. And on that basis, I will figure out how to solve the problem or overcome the barrier. And the thing about how to convince people, a lot of the time it's about convincing people, whether that's people who are investing you, well, it's absolutely about, um, the people that are working alongside you and with you and for you um and I think you've got to be incredibly authentic um in in the in all of those phases but you've got to show bravery as well I remember sometimes people be like oh my god do you really think that's going to work and I'd say absolutely and let me take this first step I'll take the first step uh, and then I'm going to bring you alongside me so i can remember doing that all the way along with idis i mean it was a really small business i can remember every phase of growth in that company i can remember getting that business to a 20 million turnover a 50 million turnover i can remember the 100 million And there were guys in the warehouse who'd been that entire journey who were like, Oh my God. I remember one guy said to me, his name was Adrian. He'd been in the, in the warehouse, the small warehouse and then the bigger one that we had to build. (laughs) And I remember him saying to me, I've worked in this company for, you know, 10 years. And he said to me, I can't believe um, that we've got to a hundred million in turnover. He said, I can remember when we've got to a million.
0: I hope he had options. Um, (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, He, you know, so I think some of I know that some of the people that did that journey with me will will still talk about it to this day because we went through extraordinary things. But we did a lot of that as a team, and you know, I'm not saying I was perfect. I think what can come along with that. Real focus, what can come along with that real passion is that sometimes you can have blind spots and Mm. you, you you know, you can't unnecessarily understand what it's like for other people to be trying to work alongside you. You know, not Mm. everybody can keep up with the founder, entrepreneur or the CEO, but, you know the CEO's role is actually a very important role. And I think that there are multitude of skills wrapped up in that role that you have to earn, you have to earn, you have to gain experience. You have to earn the right to be the CEO. What what I, um, you know, people call themselves CEO these days just because they founded a business or just because they've got a good idea. And and I, I get a little bit frustrated with that because I, I feel you do have to earn your stripes. Would you let someone fly a plane without, having gone through their hours of training um, to enable them to get, you know, the stripes on their, on their jacket, you wouldn't. And it, I feel it's the same with building a business. You know, got, I don't think you should be a CEO if you've never done certain things before, just having a great idea and building an app, right. is not, it doesn't indeed. qualify you to become a CEO. It's a, it's <laughs> a, you've got to earn your right and you've got to, you've got to, it's, it's the, it's the 10,000 hours, I believe, you know, the yeah. Gladwell, you it's it's a combination of things, but you have to earn your stripes, I think.
0: It is interesting, isn't it, how there's a certain skill set required to found a business. There is also a certain skill set that's required to be chief exec. It just seems that so often, we see it all the time at you know, seed stage health tech companies, the founder slash CEO is just the common the common thing, you know, founder, CEO, founder CEO. And for the guys that end yeah. up getting you know, seed money, series A money, and then they start to get, you know, quite decent turnover. You can often see that kind of imbalance in what they want to do, what they're good at, what they think they're good, you know, all these, and all these kind of discrepancies start coming in, in all these different categories. And it strikes me that, you know, someone like yourself, who's worked in corporate environments with, you know, big money turnover, you've, you've actually proved that, you know, you've gone from half mm-hmm. million to hundred million, hundred and fifty million, a bit die. you know, it's, it, someone like that is, is just used to the, the innards of a big corporate and there comes a point doesn't there between startup and scale up where you end up getting a lot more bureaucrats in, it, it becomes a lot more boring it's not about yeah. that initial startupy stuff and so yeah. it's, it, it strikes me it's a much different skill set that's required and it seems that often that transition isn't easily felt particularly by those that have to let it go as the founder yeah. CEO yeah. and it but yeah I, I just wonder what you think there about you know those founder CEOs and, and what what roles they should then go into or could then go into or should feel comfortable going into <laughs>
1: um, I think that 's a really good uh, question I think you know, there 's a lot of ego in all of this as well and people oh, make, absolutely uh, yeah I, I think you know and, uh, I think I mean, God, where to start with that one? I mean, look, it it goes back earning your stripes. I also did a massive turnaround of um, uh, healthcare at home. You know, it was a one and a half billion pound turnover business. You know, I've got unusual skills. I can do the big corporate. I've done the startup. I've built a business. I think those are quite unusual skill sets in one person, Um, but they're extraordinarily. Helpful, I think, in in what I'm doing now, which is looking at um, investing in businesses, looking at when it, when does a CEO or a founder entrepreneur know when to step back? I think there's two things: one is when they're no longer really loving what they're doing hmm. um, and and secondly. Um, when they're surrounded by people who have got experience who can gently point out to them when it's time to move on Um, I've just done this in two organizations one um, a non-profit I've just put a new CEO into uh, a non-profit and the founder um, you know she recognized actually that she wanted to do other stuff she's like the firefighter the big um, sorry, the fire starter. She's you know, she's the big ideas person, and as the organization was growing, she was getting more and more bogged down with the day to day operations as it's grown. So she'd grown it, she knew it was time to move on, but she what's difficult for the CEO or, or sorry, the, the, the founder entrepreneur is in some cases is sometimes one is letting go anyway, but sometimes when they know they want to let go, the question is who do they let it go to? Yeah. Um, so it is a bit complicated, but, um, but it doesn't need to be right. I think most, I think the starting point for founder entrepreneurs is maybe not to give themselves the CEO role in the first place, you know, be the founder, Be the founder of the business and then look around you and think about how you're going to build this business. It doesn't all have to center on you. And then the minute you give yourself that CEO title, it all centers around you. So that would be something that, you know, founders need to think about. Is this business going to be about you? Are you going to be doing everything or are you actually going to be doing this alongside other people can you recognize when you need other skill sets what i'm seeing a lot of at the moment which i think is quite interesting it's certainly businesses i'm looking at is there's a co there's co-founders so um it's not just one founder and and like one ceo so they're either sharing the ceo role um or and that comes with complexity but my point is it's some of these businesses are not focused around one individual and I think that 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 can make a lot of sense but but recognizing that you know if you are the founder why do you need to be the CEO sometimes if you're looking at investors maybe you know investors can be uh, guilty of this giving that title to someone who's ill-equipped for that position uh, because they need that for their fundraising or whatever I I I don't know why they do it but uh, you know if they have been given that title my view would be they need to think about how long they can run the company in that role right with all of those responsibilities um and they need to think about timing of when they sort of break out of that role um so that would be some of my thinking around that if you've got um and actually, if you're bringing in external investors, if you're bringing a board structure around you or advisors around you, just going through this in another business, um, you know, those advisors, if you value the advisors you've brought around the table, you know, going back to my point about gently persuading, those advisors know, um, you know, they're there to sort of hold the net and help manage the the, the ego, the expectations, but also help transition that CEO Um, into the right role you know founders are hugely important in companies but but they founded something they created something they're not necessarily going to be the ones that can manage every next step right so it's inevitable that they're going to have to move so you've got to think about when that person moves or they've gone a different route like i've explained of you know earning their stripes and 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 then you know they can they are growing at every stage of the business because they're putting it's like a little ladder you're putting another you know you're not trying to grow too fast you're doing it incrementally and i think that you know it, the right route depends on, you know, various stages of growth and what the expectations are. But, you know, I think that what's, if you look at what's happening in health technology, um, you know, there's explosive growth examples. And I think people are being highly unrealistic about, um, you know, what it takes to build a business, right? Everybody thinks they're going to build a unicorn just by putting a PowerPoint together and raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I mean, I talked to a guy the other day. He was like, oh, I've got to talk to you about my amazing model. And he, he just said to me, here it is. It's a PowerPoint presentation and we're going to sell it for, he said, it's going, well, I'm going to sell it for 50 million pounds. <laughs> and I said, well, what happens between the two? <laughs> mm-hmm. Where's the substance between the PowerPoint presentation and that valuation, let alone an exit? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that, you know, that sort of sums it up. But also when there is a, this major traction, when something really takes off, you know, and that founder entrepreneur is sat in the driving seat as the CEO, you know, some of that ride is fantastic, but it's not going to be a great ride the whole way along. And and they might become, might become a big business before that CEO realizes failure. Mm. And, you know, I think, I think that's not a great place to be because that can affect people in very in tremendous ways um when they're suddenly faced with failure having um you know having achieved you know in inverted commas great success so early
0: from the investor side of the table it'd be quite telling wouldn't it and it'd be it'd be quite a demonstration of insight and humility for you know founder ceos when they are presenting to to get investment that they actually did put that finite time on when they would be CEO yeah. until, you know, if, mm. if someone is going for a series A, series B and actually then showing their own, you know, fallibility, humility, insight—whatever you want to call it—by putting that finite time on it, by saying, you know, here here is my skill set, here here is where I was useful and am useful, and actually, that's going to go in this direction, and we're better off bringing someone in in that direction there to cover all the things that I am doing. That you know, it's it, it, it's interesting when you think about that, and yeah. I don't know. It's, it's part there's part of me that likens it. I mean, I know we mentioned ego and things in there. I think a lot of that is tied to identity as well. I remember when I was leaving medicine and I'm sure the clinicians listening that that have either left medicine or think about leaving medicine might identify here as well in that I was so, I was so proud to tell people I was a doctor. And then when I stopped, (laughs) when I knew when I knew I was leaving medicine, I didn't know what to tell people. And I felt like this, huge yeah. part of me had just been ripped away because I because I didn't know who I was and and much like being a startup founder, being a doctor bleeds into everything. It bleeds into your life as well as your work, right? So, yes. I, I didn't know what to tell people I was, and I, I there was this massive gaping hole in in what I was doing. And I think I really enjoyed the the actions of being a doctor so you know when I was an anesthetist and intensivist there's parts of it that were definitely attached to ego that I enjoyed you know swooping down from intensive care to intubate someone in accident emergency you know that kind of rush of doing that and you know saving someone's life and doing the bits that no, no other doctors can get there's, there's a lot there's a lot of that stuff which is definitely based in ego of the, of the stuff that I miss of medicine but then there are the other bits that are not and it all kind of compiles to this identity thing and I imagine that's the same for, for CEOs you know you've grown a company to a million two million turnover and then all of a sudden you've got to now take a back seat and allow someone else to run it I was actually talking to someone well, someone I don't know very well uh, who is he's going through this at the moment actually so he's handed over the reins to a new CEO he was the founder of the company he raised a couple of million pounds series a blah 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 and now he's handed over those reins and he said there's there's nothing tangibly actually any different he just said it's just the way it feels it just doesn't feel the same anymore and now he's he's wondering should i go and start another company and do that first bit maybe i am just good at that first bit you know
1: I think you raise a really good point. And actually I'm reflecting on, on this as you're talking. And I do think actually it is a lot to do with identity. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. went through that when I uh, left IDIS, you know, I was, I, I was, absolutely bereft actually it was my passion um and and it was it was actually about it was a total crisis because that business was actually a lot about me as well it 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 personified me in some respects so it, it wasn't necessarily about being the ceo per se it was about the business so i can understand um exactly what you're talking about and i think what we need to then do is um focus on um What's actually required and what makes a, a new business successful, and that is the founder role. That is, you know, that is a fantastic. Yeah. Um, actually, that's 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 more, um, in a way, that's a more sort of talented skill set <laughs> than. Indeed. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's a more talented skill set than being, you know, a CEO because actually, I, I, you know, as I've said before, learning your stripes, founders don't need to earn their stripes. They just create something that came out of their head, right? That's an amazing, that's sheer, you know, genius, right?
0: Mm. So
1: we somehow have to attach, um, we have to create this sort of, um, uh, this, this, um, what is the word i mean we just have to make people feel that being the founder of something is incredibly important and and i think that that's only going to happen when people stop calling founder entrepreneurs ceos right why are they called a ceo a ceo is an operator it's not the same thing yeah. um and, and so we have to create there, there's there's this kudos and genius to that um that founder title so i don't know it's how we transition people without them feeling like Um, they've failed or without them feeling like they've lost their identity um, I think is something worth exploring it's probably Mm. worth exploring with a bunch of people who've been through it but um, I think it's much easier if if somebody recognizes that it's time to move out of that seat much harder if uh, and I'm sure this happens a lot somebody's been in that role uh, since the start the business has been really successful and then suddenly they're ousted for all sorts of reasons and I can imagine that um, that's a very hard place for someone to be. There's a lot of soul Mm. searching. Um, and actually I, I was dealing with a business a couple of years ago where that had happened, where the founder had crew and CEO, um, had to be (laughs) replaced because suddenly the business wasn't working and he was absolutely, you know, flawed. He had no idea what to do with himself, but I think, um, you know it's complicated it depends on the type of personality you are but you know if if people if founders entrepreneurs stroke ceos are creating a, a business they're encouraging and securing investment my belief is that it that what comes along with that investment should be this um this team of advisors who are there to help support the founder as well as support the business that is my point there's no point in just bringing in money um, there's too much money around at the moment. Anyway, it's super easy. I'm not saying it's. It. It. it when I look back to when I was looking for money i don't believe it was as easy then as it is today there's just so much money around and i don't think that's a great environment for people to learn how to do certain things but if if you know what i would be saying to entrepreneurs is if you are looking for funding there's a number of things you need to do but along with that money you need to find people who can provide a sounding board um, but can be alongside you to help you through all the challenges you're going to have because it is not an easy journey. Getting the money agree. can be hard, but then keeping the money, and especially in health tech, right? That, the money you got today will be burned by, you know, this time next year, if not before. So, yeah. you know, you, you, the, with the constant raising, you've also got to be running the business and you can't do all of that if you haven't got a lot of experience and you can't do all of that without some additional um you know perhaps gray hair around the table indeed.
0: the gray hairs they had a lot of stability and they well, they, uh, do. Yeah, they do. yeah indeed they study the ship significantly oh, the
1: highlights in my case the highlights no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um really quickly because we're i can't believe we've actually run out of time i'm but sorry re- i've
1: talked too much
0: don't be sorry at all it was uh all fascinating stuff. I just really want to ask you quickly about healthcare at home. Yeah, sure. It was a huge challenge for you to go in and essentially turn that business around. Yeah. What was the biggest challenge? How did you go about fixing it?
1: I walked into Healthcare at Home at a time where the business was um
0: Oh, just for our listeners, what is Healthcare at Home? <laughs> I'm well, sure healthcare at home is
1: that. Britain's uh, P- healthcare at home is Britain's largest clinical home care business. It provides services for. It's funded by the pharma industry, but primarily they are NHS patients. Um, it's managing about two hundred thousand patients a year who are getting their therapy not just delivered at home but administered at home. And there's also other sort of levels of clinical elements that enable people to. Um, you know, receive healthcare outside of a hospital setting. Uh, The business had grown rapidly over probably about a 25 year period. Um, The, it had made some strategic decisions uh, prior to my arrival to outsource its um, operations to a third party. Um, And that had not gone well. And so I had to go in and sort out all sorts of things. And, I have to say I loved it. I, it. I had one of those, the first day I walk into the warehouse and it's an absolute nightmare and I know a drug warehouse, which is quite helpful. <laughs> and, and So that was my first port of gore. And I think if the warehouse is in a mess, then the whole company's in a mess. And it was oh, sure that's enough.
0: interesting,
1: but, but you know, it was a massive business. Didn't know anybody. It was a multi-sited organization Um, lots of operational challenges, really poor technology, um, poor leadership, like there was nothing I could draw on that could give me any comfort. And I had to, well, straight away, I didn't see anything that I could work with. But what I did see, um uh what I did is I looked for people in the company who were really frankly shit hot what they did Mm -hmm. and I pulled together a bunch of 50 people got them in a room didn't know any of them and I said to them and and there are all sorts of things going on you know people were huddling in corners every day looking at 300 kpis and crazy so it was it was like a building on fire nobody had grabbed the reins and said right this is what we're going to do so I walk in I survey the landscape I think okay this is an absolute um, mess what am I going to do so I got you know obviously over a couple of a couple of days really and then within a couple of weeks I got 50 people in a room and I said right I need a bunch of people I've been told you're the best people in the company and they weren't all like senior managers we this wasn't let's get the senior management team together I was like who in who in this company knows what's going on and how are we going to piece this supply chain together because that's basically what it is how are we going to piece this supply chain together i uh, got 50 people in the room and I said, right, we need a plan. I need seven KPIs and no more. And those seven KPIs are going to dictate what we focus on in order to get this service back up and running. And those 50 people were utterly amazing. Um, there was one girl in particular, Sarah, who took the reins and said, I'll lead the team. And we got a plan of action in place and focus on those seven kpis i then did a big communication to all our clients nhs and the pharma industry and i said um i'm really sorry we are in a mess we are going to sort it out here's our plan and we're going to get this service back on track within 12 weeks we actually did it in eight weeks and that wasn't the the end of it all right there was a long phase of um transformation but the priority going back to the focus is we need to get this service back on track. We need to stop the phones ringing because some patients didn't need to be phoning in because they were still getting their therapy. We needed to stop the panic, which was largely based out of the fact that the company wasn't communicating to people very well. Um, we need to tell our customers, sorry, that this is the plan and we need you to support it, which they did. So I had a lot to do, but we turned the performance of the business within eight weeks and we said, we'll do it in twelve. Um, and then I got the whole company together we did a series of meetings and there were 1500 people in the company we did a three-day meeting 500 a day and I was and again part of my um, mentality one of the best things as a CEO is just be transparent and honest with people because the business was depending on staff, right? The the staff turning up every day of the week, the passion in that business is just outstanding. But these people were exhausted with, with, you know, working so hard. Um, and I just got them together and I said, right. Um, this is where we're at if we don't sort this out if we don't get this performance um to this level the business is not going to survive and we need you to be on board we need you to focus on these things um if we get there the business is going to survive and then we're going to take it to this level and i just kept that transparency going um and uh, one of the feed, a lot of people said to me, that's the, I heard it from customers. I heard it from regulators. (laughs) I heard it from, I heard it from staff. They said, this is the first time any, the CEO at healthcare, I don't want to be disparaging about anybody before me, but I think my point is my level of honesty is probably a lot more, um, is a lot better than a lot of other CEOs. I'm just straight out there with right guys, we can save the business. I need you all. Um and this is what we're doing. So it's very simple plan, simple metrics, transparency, and we've got to do it. And we did. We we achieved some amazing things as a team.
0: Amazing. That's it. I can't believe we've run out of time. This has gone sorry. so quickly. Um I'm <laughs> i I'm just gonna touch so what what I've basically taken away from that is that if you want to turn a business around, it's about finding the good people. And it's yeah. about open authentic communication to your staff and your customers and at the end yeah. of the day if you want to know the state of a company go and have a look at their drug warehouse right
1: <laughs> <laughs> it would be one of my recommendations
0: yeah. lastly <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on to the HS the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure um, to, talk to you James no problem speak soon
1: Thanks so much bye-bye.
0: hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content